Welcome everybody. I think you've already guessed. My name is Warren Perry. We're here to talk about David Silvette's portrait of Scott Fitzgerald. I know I've gotten a lot of you students here from Catholic University. I'm hoping that this will stretch across our curriculum and, uh, and help us all out there as well as here uh, for, the, for the public's sake. This is an amazing portrait. To look at this portrait of Scott Fitzgerald, you would think that the whole world was, was coming up roses at this time in his life. However, it was not the case. This portrait was painted in 1935. His wife of 15 years, Zelda, had been in and out of an asylum, or actually several asylums, and at this moment she was actually in Asheville, North Carolina, and she was trying to overcome a series of mental crises. What I want to do is, is start at the beginning and talk a few moments about the portrait. The artist, David Silvette, studied under his father, Elvis, Ellis, <laughs> you can tell I'm from Memphis, <laughs> Ellis Silvette, and then later Cecilia Bowes, who uh, she's represented in many places throughout this institution. Other than his portrait of Scott Fitzgerald hanging here at the National Portrait Gallery, there's also an image by Silvette at the Treasury Department of Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of the Treasury in the late 1930s. This portrait of Scott Fitzgerald was painted in 1935, and it was actually commissioned by Scott Fitzgerald, but he never owned it. Scott was broke most of the time in the late 1930s, trying to pay Zelda's medical bills and overcoming his, or trying to overcome his chronic alcoholism. He didn't have the money to ever buy this portrait. Ten years, this was ten years after the publication of The Great Gatsby. At the time, Scott Fitzgerald was suffering, when this was painted, a complete emotional breakdown. He agreed to pose, and he considered it, and I quote, a swell portrait. Uh, his career uh, was over in five years. He actually spent the next few years in Hollywood, and we'll discuss that in just a few moments. But at, at this moment, uh, he's in a state of mental collapse, physical collapse, emotional collapse, and certainly uh, by this time, career collapse. Scott Fitzgerald was born in 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was the child of Edward Fitzgerald and Molly McKillen Fitzgerald. He was of Irish Catholic stock, like so many of these people in this room I know. And he was uh, also from an East Coast heritage. Uh, actually, we can, uh, we can visit his grave. He's buried in Rockville, uh, along with his wife and their child. He's a descendant of Francis Scott Key, the gentleman who wrote the national anthem. Early on, Scott Fitzgerald became aware, growing up in St. Paul and then later going to prep schools on the East Coast, he became aware of the distance between his middle class upbringing and where he really wanted to be, which was where the girls he liked were very upper class. He liked the girls who came from a little bit of money. He liked their style and he, uh, he certainly liked their beauty. Um, interestingly, his father married, uh, his father was very similar to the, the guys that he wrote about. Edmund, well, Edward rather, was, um, was not a very wealthy man and he married a woman who was from a much greater means than he was. Scott Fitzgerald was educated in private schools in the Midwest and later on the East Coast. He spent a lot of time socializing with the wealthier boys and uh, trying to curry favor for them he would occasionally write their papers in school, something I discourage any of you from doing. He published in the school journals, and he always had this image of himself. When he was 
In college, he had this image of himself being a big man on campus. He went to Princeton, and he saw himself playing football. He ordered his football uniform before he ever went to Princeton. He wasn't good enough to play football for Princeton, however. Later on, when he joined the military, he had his uniform specially ordered from Brooks Brothers. He was a lousy soldier. I'm going to give you a few examples of exactly how lousy a soldier he was. He entered the military uh, when he failed out of Princeton. And really, except for four really amazing novels and a couple of dozen splendid short stories and a hell of an interesting life, Scott Fitzgerald was a failure as a person, completely washed out, and, and his life was, was filled full of sadness at so many moments. Um, he, he failed out of Princeton, and in November 1917, he joined the Army, hoping that he could go overseas and become a hero in the First World War. That didn't quite work out. Here's a couple of notes on his military career. Despite his sophisticated, uh, his time in a sophisticated male milieu, most of his military colleagues considered him weak, spoiled, and immature. Alonzo Myers, who served with Fitzgerald for most of his military career, con considered Scott, quote, as an army officer, unusually dispensable. He lacked judgment, according to others. Um, he made some horrible mistakes. He was persuaded uh, to sleep through Reveille one time, and instead of turning out for inspection uh, like he should have, when he finally did show up, he showed up on the parade ground on a horse and he fell off the horse, a little bit reminiscent of Franklin Pierce, who, uh, who fainted in the middle of the Battle of Vera Cruz. Um, Here's a terrible story about Scott Fitzgerald's military time. He was a supply officer when he was sent to Hoboken, New Jersey, and rather than stay, um, stay with his job, he went out one night, he went out partying, and uh, he went back to Princeton. Thousands of dollars worth of materials were stolen while he, um, while he went out to play with his buddies at Princeton. And uh, in order to, to cover himself, to provide himself with an alibi, he claimed that he had actually been sent to Washington with a uh, top secret message for President Wilson. While he was stationed at Camp Mills on Long Island, he went into New York for a party. He borrowed a friend's room at the Hotel Astor. He was caught there by the house detective, naked and in bed with a girl. He tried to bribe the detective with a dollar bill that he folded to try to make it look like a hundred dollar bill, but he was caught again. He had just one bad military episode uh, after another. Uh, he later suggested that the Army was merely a social extension of Princeton and declared, I can't tell you how I wanted to get over to fight in Europe. I wanted to belong to what every other bastard belonged to, the greatest club in history. <clears throat> His uh, fellow officers believe, however, that had he gone over there, he, and Ernest Hemingway also said this, he probably would have been shot for cowardice. After the military, he met uh, Zelda Sayre in Montgomery, Alabama in 1918. He took a job in New York. He was so impressed with her, he wanted to marry her, so he realized, I'm poor. She wasn't very wealthy, but she was Southern, she was beautiful, and he wanted to marry her. He went up to New York, got a job as an ad writer. While he was in New York, he published This Side of Paradise, which was his first novel. That was in 1920. At that point, he's a celebrity all over the place. The book instantly sold thousands and thousands of copies because it told the story of this uplifting lifestyle of these young college kids in New Jersey. And, and like I said, he was an instant celebrity. They were the book was published in March of 1920. Scott and Zelda were married in April. Um, an interesting fact, F. Scott Fitzgerald had a foot fetish. He 
himself had ugly feet. But when he saw a woman's feet, if that woman had particularly good-looking feet, it really turned him on and jazzed him up. Uh, there's, there's a lot written, actually, about his foot fetish. Um, <laughs> surprisingly, a large amount written about his foot fetish. Um, he had published two novels by the time he wanted to get away from the East Coast. In about 1923-1924, Scott and Zelda decided they wanted to move to Paris. They moved to Paris where they met two people, two amazing people, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, two people who embodied 20th century great living. The Murphys are synonymous with opulence. And at any given night at the Murphy's house in Paris or at their home on the French Riviera, they actually repopularized the summer vacation on the French Riviera, the Murphys and the Fitzgeralds. On any given night, the Murphys would have people in their house like John Dos Passos, Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Picasso, Dorothy Parker, Archibald MacLeish, Cole Porter, uh, Serge Diaghilev, head of the Moscow Ballet, the Ballet Russe rather, Fernand Leger, uh, Robert Benchley. The Murphy's house was an intersection of the famous people who were expatriates in the 1920s. The Murphys themselves had so very much money. She was the daughter of a Midwest industrialist, and he was the son of the scions of the Mark Cross Company, who make fine goods, fine goods for men, and they make this pen, Mark Cross, right? All the money in the, in the world, they could afford to move anywhere, do anything they wanted. For years, they supported Picasso, Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, as these guys were, as these guys were writing. We're going to sidetrack for just a very brief moment. I want to hand this out. Please pass these around if you don't mind. This is a moment in The Great Gatsby I want to illustrate to you, which is terribly interesting. This is how good a writer Scott Fitzgerald is. We're at the end of chapter two in The Great Gatsby. Tom Buchanan and his mistress, Myrtle, have a house in Manhattan. They have a party there, and they invite Nick Carraway, who is the one who's telling us the story of Gatsby. At this party, everybody gets drunk. It's an absolutely awful gathering. The people begin drinking in the afternoon. The whole thing turns into a blur. And there's this couple who live downstairs from where Tom and Myrtle have rented this apartment. They're the McKees. Mr. McKee is a photographer. Mr. McKee and Nick Carraway get very drunk. Please look toward the end of the page. I'm sorry, about halfway down the page. This takes place right as Tom Buchanan has hit Myrtle in the nose and he's busted her nose up because she won't, shouting the name, she won't stop shouting the name of Tom's wife, Daisy. She says over and over again, Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. And then he hits her in the face and there's a horrible scene. It's very, very violent. And you, as the reader, are caught up in this scene. It's a significant and inhumane moment, and it belongs entirely to Tom Buchanan. Scott Fitzgerald, inside that moment, weaves something into Nick Carraway's character that unless you read closely, you completely overlook. Again, we're at the end of chapter two. So, Mr. McKee, the photographer, says, come to lunch someday, as we groan down in the elevator. Where? And this is Nick Carraway doing the question and answer with him, right? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator boy. Little Freudian thing at work there. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I didn't know I was touching it. All right, I agreed. I'll be glad to. 
You see the three ellipses before the next sentence? And then you see the next sentence? I was standing beside his bed and he was sitting up between the sheets clad in his underwear with a great portfolio in his hands. What is Nick Carraway doing in that man's bedroom while that man is between the sheets without any clothes on? Interestingly, Zelda Fitzgerald and Scott Fitzgerald, of course, had a very bizarre marriage. She had, she had mental instability running in her family, running amok. It was in her DNA. It was in her everyday behavior. Zelda suspected Scott long of homosexuality. Zelda, on the other hand, um, was unfaithful to Scott. In 1925, she had an affair with a guy named Edouard Josan. He was a French aviator. He was Mediterranean, good-looking. Um, it was a brief affair, but it stunned Scott forever. It, it put their marriage in a terrible place for a long, long time. Scott, on the other hand, other than the, the talk uh, about this, this homosexuality, there's nothing really that's, that really is proof that that ever happened. Interestingly, though, he did have mistresses. Uh, Rosalind Fuller in 1919, Lois Moran in 1927, Bijou O'Connor in 1930, Dorothy Parker, Scott Fitzgerald's mistress in 1934, Nora Lynn, Beatrice, Dance and, uh, Beatrice and Lottie Dance of Asheville in 1935, uh, his nurse, Dorothy Richardson in 1936, and the woman with whom he was sleeping when he died, Sheila Graham, who was a British gossip columnist who lived in Los Angeles when Scott did. <coughs> Pardon me. By the time Scott Fitzgerald is in his 30s. Zelda has completely run amok. Both of them have, really. At the Murphy's parties, they're doing things like throwing the Murphy's crystal out of the kitchen and onto the beach. They're, there's all kinds of bad stories. Zelda enjoyed doing a little dance for the men folks where she would get a little bit drunk and she'd reach underneath her dress and she'd pull off her underpants and she'd throw them at the men. She was a little bit bizarre, well, a little bit bizarre, you know. Washington's a little bit political. She, um, she, she was way out there. Scott put her in several asylums. By the 1930s, Scott is broke. The Great Gatsby, of all things, did not sell. The book sold poorly. Scott continued to be broke. He went to Hollywood in 1936. He began working on the movies. He was a failure at that. However, when the Murphy's oldest son died, or when the Murphy's remaining son Patrick died, and this is where I want to wrap things up. This is, this is the humanity that's left in Scott Fitzgerald by 1936. Upon the death of their son, he writes to Gerald and Sarah Murphy, the telegram came today and the whole afternoon was sad with thoughts of you in the past and the happy times we had once. Another link binding you to life is broken and with such insensate cruelty that it is hard to say which of the two blows was conceived with more malice. I can see the silence in which you hover now and after this seven years of struggle and it would take words like Lincoln's in his letter to the mother who had lost four sons in the war to write you anything fitting at the moment. But I can see another generation growing up and an eventual peace somewhere, an occasional port of call as we all sail deathward. Fate cannot have any more arrows in its quiver for you that will wound like these. The golden bowl is broken indeed, but it was golden. Nothing can ever take away those boys from you now. They'd actually lost two sons. The stunning humanity after life has completely butchered him shows a spirit 
at the time this portrait was painted, shows the spirit of a man, not the guy who was drinking 30 to 40 bottles of beer every day, not the guy who was downing a quart of gin and taking sleeping pills and smoking and not eating. Shows the spirit of a guy who, who didn't want to stop living. Scott Fitzgerald, I think, well, let me see this copy of Gatsby. When you read Gatsby, I think, I think you, sum up, you sum up his whole life. The last sentence of Gatsby, we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And we have music to escort us out. Thank you all for coming. I'll see the Catholic University students outside. We'll sign a little sheet and be done with it. Thanks again for coming out on a very bizarre evening. <laughs>